Welcome to episode 270 of Live Happy Now. This is Paula Phelps thanking you for joining us again this week. Even before the coronavirus pandemic hit, psychologist Dr. Lisa Van Susteren was noticing a new phenomenon. She saw a growing number of patients who were plagued by worry, disturbing and intrusive thoughts, sleep disruptions, grief, and more. She identified this trend as a condition she calls emotional inflammation. And then, along with award-winning health writer Stacy Colino, wrote a book by the same name. As it turns out, emotional inflammation, discover your triggers and reclaim your equilibrium during anxious times, is exactly the book we need for our current situation. This week, she talks about how the pandemic has only heightened our emotional inflammation and what we can do about it. Lisa, welcome to Live Happy Now. Thank you for having me, Paula. You have written one of the most interesting books you could have written for right now. And it's interesting that it was actually written before, obviously, the pandemic started. So I I think to start with, can you explain to us what you mean when you say emotional inflammation? Yes. Emotional inflammation, we're all familiar with physical inflammation, something that is after an injury or some other kind of illness or disease, we can have a joint or some other part of our body red and inflamed and it hurts. And it means that we can't really function uh, the way we would ordinarily or what we would like to. And so it's sort of the counterpart is an emotional inflammation where we're also raw and on edge, hurting, not able to function the way we would want to because of some assault or some state of mind that is unnerving us. So that's, in a nutshell, what emotional inflammation is. And those are things we're familiar with, but this is the first time that I've heard of it, of the condition being given that name. So how did that come about and how did you become aware of that? Well, uh, of course, there's the famous book, Thomas Goldman's uh, book that's so good. Let's get back to how we got to the name emotional inflammation. It really was uh, a series of sort of thoughts about we had a number of different ideas and finally landed on this one because it's the way it feels uh, to me. I've been treating patients for many, many years. And in the last several years, increasingly, I have felt as if there's an almost inflammatory, psychologically inflammatory response. And so that's how it came from psychological to the more general emotional inflammation. People are on edge. They feel more anxious than they have in the past. There is a feeling of foreboding, a sense of emptiness. All of these sentiments sort of mixing around, and as I say, increasingly in the last several years. What has caused that? I have some ideas. I thought you might. (laughs) Right. What I'm seeing is that people have this sense that there is, the world is a little bit out of control and increasingly so. And it comes from a feeling first of internal alienation as if they're not grounded in any real sense of purpose. They feel that their lives are somewhat isolated. Uh, This is certainly the uh, sort of uh, hallmark of uh, a technologically driven society where we really don't have to be face to face anymore. And so there is a sense 
that we have lost something in this mechanized world. It's sort of like, as I've said and, and other times when people have asked me this question, it's like the, for a woman at least, I, uh, the boyfriend or significant other that comes by with a razzle-dazzle car and promises you beautiful <laughs> vacations, this is technology, and all this great stuff, but can never make an emotional commitment. And so you're really left without anything substantial. And increasingly, I've seen people spend their days in front of a computer screen and they don't even go outside to pick up the rays of the sun, to feel the wind, a little breeze, to see the green of nature, to hear the sounds of nature. And we are increasingly becoming depleted. And I think that this anxiety has come from the fact that we really have strayed from what is a more normal, and I, by normal, I mean natural, living in harmony with how we were designed from an evolutionary perspective then. We have many of the consequences of these general trends, certainly that we hear the news in split seconds from all over the world. So there's kind of the cumulative toll of bad news as opposed to just hearing what's in your neighborhood. We now know every neighborhood. And uh, it's no secret that uh, political discord has made us feel like the family, which politicians are sort of like our family members in that they've got a lot of power. And it's like when we were kids and our parents are fighting and threatening and, and all the rest, the kids suffer. And so does the nation. And I believe that the political discord in the last several years has just thrown gasoline on the fire. And then, of course, uh, now we have the pandemic, which is derivative of the backdrop of all of this climate disruption. So uh, I've been a little long-winded there, but wind me up and I'll keep on talking. So I'll, <laughs> I'll slow down. No, that's, that is terrific because it's such a logical progression of, of how we got there. And as we talk about the pandemic, how have you seen that exacerbate this emotional inflammation? The pandemic has had both a, a sort of a positive and a negative. Let's start with the positive, And that is that it has shown us how important we are to each other and how important connection to nature is and we have seen this as we appreciate clap for stand on our balconies or otherwise tell first responders how indebted we feel to them for their courage and it's something did we really know about how courageous the person next door could be potentially putting his or her life on the line for us and doing so, so selflessly, sometimes without even the proper equipment. And we have seen the people that are running to get groceries or make deliveries or doing all the other things that have kept us alive during this time. And boy, do we appreciate each other in ways that we didn't. And I think there's a growing sense that the people who have the means now must look a little bit harder to put themselves in the shoes of others and say to these people, I don't want to get too political, but let's be authentic, or I will be. Do these people have, are they earning a minimum wage? Uh, is it a minimum wage that can allow them to survive? Do they have sick leave? Can they afford to not be at work if they're sick, as they're being admonished not to come work to work if they're sick? So I think we have begun to look at some of the social ills that may have contributed to the inequities that have caused a good deal of discord in our lives. And secondly, a real prominent feature of our activities and interests in the last several months 
have revolved around the need to, quote, get out, get out in nature. And what I love about our book is my favorite part, and Stacy, my co-author, whom I believe me, this book would not have, would not be where it is if it hadn't been for Stacy. She's just a brilliant writer. And we just had such a great time working together. But Stacy always says, oh, don't tell them that's your favorite chapter. And then I'll say, okay, that's right. All my chapters. I like all the chapters. <laughs> They're like children. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. The, the nature chapter tells us all about why we would feel some of the things that have been affecting us in these last several decades. We were evolved, Paula, to be outside to absorb the rays of the sun. If you look at how much time we used to spend getting the sunlight and how much we get now just racing to the car, it would be a real eye-opener. And it's especially eye-opening because sunlight is so critical to so many functions uh, that assure our well-being. From being able to get up in the morning, it helps us secrete melatonin, to telling us that now it's getting dark, time to shut down and the rest of the world, animal and except for the nocturnal ones, and plants are all going to bed. Our whole body reads that darkness and says, time for us now to shut down. And we are defying so many of these rules by so many things that we're doing, we can get into that. But we also were evolved to find comfort in seeing things that are green. Green suggests biodiversity. It suggests that this is a healthy place for us to be. The shapes of nature tell us that there's order. You look at the trees and you see how branches and leaves and the veins of leaves all are repeating patterns. And while we're not conscious of this, our minds pick up on this. They simulate, activate reward centers, dopamine, and we know dopamine is the reward molecule. And that in turn, even, and this is what's so mesmerizing about the sea and the patterns of the waves, they even then activate opioid receptors, which are painkillers. So that sense of peace that we have had by being in our normal habitat, along with the sounds, not human-made sounds, but animals, birds, or uh, the sounds of the crickets or frogs and toads, my favorites. So we can think of so many ways. And even sometimes when I'm talking about this, people will say, you know, just hearing about it relaxes me. And that's what we were meant to be spending a good deal of our time in, not in air-conditioned spaces where there's maybe just the whir, the sounds of mechanical things around us. So we're missing big parts of what we were evolutionarily designed to absorb. And, and if we're, even yeah. if we're not consciously missing that, our bodies miss that and our DNA is kind of craving that despite us not recognizing it. Oh, absolutely. Our unconscious, uh, this is a real fallacy and I'm really glad you brought it up. And that is that we're, mostly rational. It is so ridiculous. <laughs> no, we're not. There's a part of our brain, the sort of situation room that evaluates stuff uh, according to our values and uh, our consciences and the social mores and things like that. 
but so much of what's going on is below the surface. And we now have brain scans and electroencephalograms that measure our brain waves that show us how much activity is taking place below the surface, how much of our of a constant evaluation takes place below the surface. It actually brings to mind an important just sort of footnote, and that is that lately, of course, uh, many of my colleagues and I have been seeing people remotely. And uh, people have said, oh, it's a lot easier. I don't have to go all the way to your office. And of course, I don't have to drag myself to my office either. But all of the body language is lost. All of the respiration rate, the twitches of the foot, all of the things that not only I can pick up consciously, but my patients will see my response if they say something that's particularly troubling and they can see that, you know, I'm unfazed by it. That's how you can learn by mirroring what the other person is feeling. And so much of what we pick up on and are affected by is what we feel from others that we're not aware of. And that brings up a great point that I wanted to talk about because, you know, the anxiety and fear around COVID-19 is, boy, that's as contagious as the virus itself, I think. You know, people are terrified. They're terrified they're going to get sick. They're terrified their finances are not going to be okay. Their businesses are going under. So how do people keep from taking on the fears and anxiety of the people around them? It's tough. And of course, we have to recognize that these fears are legitimate. It's not like you're telling them to have a look under the bed. There's no alligator there. Right. Uh, There is an alligator there. Uh, And so it's very, very difficult to say anything that will, quote, dispel a person's fears and anxiety. But one thing that I learned, have learned over the years, is that people have different ways of dealing with anxiety. And we make a mistake sometimes of thinking that people aren't feeling anxious or they're downplaying our anxiety or disavowing it because they have a different style from us. So the book is really designed in part to allow people to know what their, quote, reactor type is. And this was before COVID. Again, COVID is the most acute form and one of the most lethal forms of anxiety these days. But obviously, we wrote the book in response to many other anxieties. When people recognize that they have different styles and their reactor types, there are four different reactor types. People always ask me what mine is, and I'm sort of the revved up one where I just try to do more. And if I do so much, of course, things are dropping to the ground and splatting, but I don't have time to think. And so my anxieties would mostly just creep up when you turn the light off or when you first wake up in the morning, but it's just a madcap race through the day otherwise. And others will have, for example, uh, you know, they get angry at the injustices they see, at the anxieties that they feel, and still others might withdraw. And then there are the nervous reactors. And the point of mentioning all of these is that We need to understand that stylistically, if you're a retreating reactor, you may need to go into your room or some quiet space and have some alone time where you feel uh, the chance to just let your uh, self settle down. 
and being revved up is just the polar opposite of what you need. What you need. Well, if you've got a frantic type and a withdrawing type in the same house, the frantic one's going to drive the withdrawing one absolutely nuts, knocking on the door. What are you doing in there? Are you going to come out? <laughs> I thought you were going to help me with it. And the withdrawing one is thinking, oh my God, am I ever going to get one second of peace? They're just dealing with the same thing in a different way. So step one in responding to each other's legitimate anxiety and fear understand that we have different ways of processing this. And secondly, it's really critical. And I, in all honesty, I'll have to tell people that I don't always succeed in doing this, but I've never regretted it when I manage. And that is sitting down and talking with the people that you live with about your fears and about your styles, uh, starting with what's going right at the moment letting people know that you can see the positive, what you're grateful for, how you believe they are helping, and then segueing to one or two things that you wish could be different. And it's a way of really addressing that feeling of helplessness, that being in free fall, because you're taking some action and you're usually taking action with the people that are among the most important ones in your life. And getting them to do the same. It's a family debrief or a house meeting, whatever it is that you want to call it. But it's very important to do this on a regular basis. Now, that step three, and there we can go on, but I won't go on forever. If you can get out in nature, it's unbelievable. That psychic reset, as you remove yourself from those four walls and you look at the beauty of the sky and the majesty, if you're lucky enough to be a place where there's there trees, at the majesty of trees uh, and the excitement of wildlife living their whole lives by themselves. They don't need, uh, you know, they just need us to stay out of the way. It's just <laughs> magical. And then there's a fourth thing, which I really, really, really cannot underscore enough. And that is, for me, it's been transcendental meditation. I know that others look for mindfulness. Transcendental meditation has been a lifesaver for me. I talk about it in the book, not at great length, because there are other places that you can find it. But it is one of the most uh, healing forces that I have ever encountered. And it doesn't do me any good financially or otherwise to try to sell. This is what I tell my patients because I don't get anything from it. I, my patients heal faster, quicker, better, and as much more enduring. So have a look at, at transcendental meditation or at least mindfulness. Yeah, that, that's excellent because anything that you can do to kind of reset and take that break away from it is imperative, especially now. Absolutely. Getting a little bit, and again, in the crush of the moment, it, understand that you should recognize that it's no wonder uh, you may feel the way you do. Yeah. Now, now, you have something, a practice that I want to talk about. It's called the 90-second rule. Right. Yeah. Could you explain yeah. what that is and how oh, we can God. do yeah, that's that's a good one. That's I sometimes forget it. I honestly, you may be going to laugh, Paula, but I have to reread this book over and over again because there there's there's a lot of recommendations. It's sort of like an a la carte menu. It, take what you need when you want mm -hmm. it, and I forget about oh yeah that dish. Oh, I really like that. <laughs> one. Uh, so the ninety second rule. There is a neuroscientist who, along with many others, who looks at the brain 
And one of the things that she has realized is that when we get up in arms about something, the physiologic, in other words, the natural response is for all the alarms to go off. But after those 90 seconds, those chemicals, pretty much the natural alarm system goes off of its own. It's just like a burglar alarm. It will go off eventually. Of course, we're saying 90 seconds. And then after the 90 seconds, it's pretty much your choice about whether you're going to hang on to that thing and keep on chewing on it and chewing on it and chewing on it. And I have a tendency to do that either, well, two speeds, either completely forget about it and be accused of not, this is in the family, (laughs) be accused (laughs) of uh, not caring enough or listening or whatever, but I've put it out of my mind or else I don't let go. And it really is such a lifesaver to say, I don't have to do this. I am not physiologically programmed to hang on to this. Let go. What's your technique for or your advice for how to let go? Again, for me, and this becomes a very rational argument, that's where the uh, emotion isn't necessarily addressed. But for me, there are two things that are sort of in play here. One is that I say, okay, physiologically, the chemicals, the neurochemicals that make me feel like I'm up in arms about something have been metabolized. They're gone now. But what I realize is if there are vestiges or really the very pronounced feelings left over, that's our chance. And this is where that chapter on evaluate your triggers comes in handy. Because very often, if we rewind, we can find if we let our minds go and we promote this and embrace it, we can find out some of the origins of our sensitivity. So let's say somebody says, are you sure you want to wear that? Uh, Obviously, (laughs) for a woman, we know what it means, but why can't we just let it go? Maybe the person didn't like the color. Maybe it doesn't mean that you look like you're fat or God only knows what. But suppose we were teased on the playground about our weight. You can see that if you rewind, you will see that part of your response may be reflected by the intensity of the unresolved emotions from earlier days. So that's why when you have a highly emotional response, rewinding to look at the triggers can shed some light. And once you can say, oh, right, this person may not be trying to tell me I'm fat. Maybe it's just that this is a little bit fancier event and maybe my cutoffs and a t-shirt that has a little few spots on it won't do. So you can take things more contextually rather than historically. That is fantastic. I love that advice. And, you know, I know we've been talking for a little bit, but I want to make sure that we talk about something you mentioned, which is being a bystander, Mm. but becoming an upstander. Mm -hmm. So can you explain, I found this really interesting. So can you explain the difference between the two and then two part question, and then tell us how we can make that shift from bystander to upstander. It's no newsflash to say that people are looking for purpose in life, uh, that we are looking to feel fulfilled. And oftentimes we don't really know what it is that we want to do. And we're so busy sometimes with our lives, especially if we have children and they're young 
children and where we're just launching a career and things like that. So we often get entrenched into a job to earn money so we can support ourselves and the people around us. And we look at social ills and we may decry them, but we really don't know how to do anything about them. And here comes the, the, the crux of where we are now. And I'll, maybe I'll speak about it in terms of climate because I think that's the most probably powerful force right now, well, not right now, but is the powerful force that can really, you know, has the capacity to bring us down. And I will hearken back to a story that some may recall, your older listeners certainly will, that there was a woman named Kitty Genovese who was stabbed right in front of her apartment building in New York Mm -hmm. in the 60s and reportedly in front of a crowd who failed to take any action. Huge outcry. Uh, Social scientists said, what in the world? So they studied this. And what they found out is that people are likely to be bystanders or they're likely actually to address that sense of a bystander, the most affected by what the people around them are doing. So people, others are just standing there, then we'll just be bystanders too. They're also bystanders when they don't feel that there's anything specific that they can do to help. So what then has promoted in the eyes of many social scientists who advocate for action on so many social issues is to encourage people to take a leadership role, whatever it is. If it's just so much as saying, look, we've got to recycle this paper if you're at work or turn off the lights or you want to get solar. Because it almost feels like something that was written specifically for this moment in time amount of time but that you do things and that you recognize the power of one and just like our votes on election day we've influenced the people around us and those people around us plus our vote that's the collective voice that changes outcomes so recognizing the importance of a leadership role and then turning to the things specifically that we can do that will make a difference. And this is where we have to know ourselves better. Where are we in our lives? What are we good at? What do we love? What's important to us? And part of the book is dedicated to helping people better understand what are the most important features, factors, issues in your life that really drive you and make you feel passionate. Because that's where you belong. If you're going to be engaged in something, not where you think you belong or where your friends necessarily are, but what's driving you from the inside. And then you can go from being a bystander to a person who is taking action and an upstander. And that's the empowering action that is this powerful antidote to the feeling of helplessness or feelings of being out of control or uncertainty. We can say more about that, but that is the magic, that's the magic sauce. And that's what I think a lot of us are missing right now, especially because we do feel helpless. We feel like, I don't know what to do. I feel like everything's just blowing up around me. And so we don't know what to do. Right. Well, we've been put in a very dependent position. We have to wait to go to the grocery store. We have to wait for a delivery if we're lucky enough to to have one. We have to take our cues from others. We have lost a considerable amount of independence. But we can also reframe it and tell ourselves that one of the most socially responsible things that we can do now 
is just the opposite. It's not that it's impinging on our freedom. What we are doing now is showing the world, in a sense, what collective action can do. And that is when we stay at home, we get a hold on the virus. And so that's an empowering action to stay home. And the uh, sacrifice is a little bit of independence, and meaning that now we have to turn to others. But this is the powerful collective action right now. It just needs to be reframed as such. That's excellent. Now, before I let you go, we know that this is going to go on. It's, this uncertainty is going to continue for quite some time. And so what do you say to listeners to help them manage their emotions and prepare for this as over the coming months? Just what you said. We need to take it week by week. And it's easier for some to say, because if you're in a small apartment with young children, you know, it's a, a different set of recommendations than a person who might be living alone or different set of recommendations or a person who might be living with a few others, but in, in a very large space. But the people who are crammed should know that we realize the intense pressure on you. And we wish that we could help more. Uh, many of us know what it's like to be a parent and how difficult that is. And I would encourage, because I think those are the people that are probably, in addition to those who are isolated, the ones who need the most help, pick up the phone. There are now places that you can call and you can get help. I believe almost every state has a helpline. You may have to wait a little while, but there are people who care, who can give you advice, who can tell you that they, while not experiencing exactly what you're experiencing, they know the intensity of what you're going through. And let's face it, the reality is this is time limited. It isn't going to be forever. We are going to be back out there. And the hope is better, stronger, smarter, more empathic, more aware of what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes and to look at the people that we choose to write policy so that we do reopen with what we hope would be a fair, just, and compassionate nation. That's wonderful. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. This is a very wise book, so timely. I don't know if you've like sat there and, and marveled at the fact of how timely it is. That was Dr. Lisa Van Susteren talking about how we can learn to recognize and avoid emotional inflammation. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa or her book, Emotional Inflammation, Discover Your Triggers and Reclaim Your Equilibrium During Anxious Times, just visit us at livehappynow.com and follow the links. And a reminder to bring a little bit of happiness to your workday every day with the Live Happy Daily Happiness Briefing. Just enable this as a skill on your Amazon device and start your morning by saying, Alexa, give me my Live Happy Daily Happiness Briefing. That's all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one. <music>